This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, have you ever had someone twist your words or misunderstand what you said to the point that what they said you said wasn't anything like what you actually said? Now, it's kind of like we play the, the telephone game with each other. You guys remember the telephone game where uh, what you would do is you would, you would sit in a circle and the first person would, they would whisper something into the ear of the person next to them, right? And then they would whisper that in the ear of the person next to them. And you'd keep going around this circle until it got back to the person who started the saying. And oftentimes, what's whispered in their ear doesn't sound anything like what they had told the first person, does it? But that's what we do to each other. We, we misunderstand what each other is saying, but we don't just do that to each other. You know, we do that with God as well, don't we? We misunderstand what God has said. We claim that God has said one thing when in reality, he said something completely different. Now, most of you know, I grew up, uh, I grew up what I call a church kid, right? I grew up in the church. And so growing up in church, I learned a thing or two about the Bible. However, I had never actually read the Bible. My, uh, my Bible was in mint condition. I bring to you as evidence of my lack of Bible reading, the Bible given to me when I was in high school by my aunt. Uh, she gave all the nieces and nephews a Bible, and like it is in pristine condition, okay? Uh, the, there's no marks on it whatsoever. So everything that I thought God had said in this book, what was based on what I thought he said, what I hoped he had said, and what others had said that he said. And it wasn't until I turned 30. That's a safe place, right? I can acknowledge that. Okay? It wasn't until I turned 30, which was like two weeks ago. No. It wasn't until I turned 30 that I set out to find out what God actually said. And when I began to open the pages of Scripture, one, my Bible didn't look the same. This thing's nasty and beat up. And my life didn't look the same either. And as I set to find out what God actually said, as I set out to read these, these words breathed out by God himself, God began to correct my misunderstanding of what he had actually said. And that, in a sense, is what Jesus is doing here in this section of the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew that we find ourselves in. As Jesus corrects six different misunderstandings that we have. And what we're going to notice, as Pastor Robin pointed out a couple weeks ago, each of these is relational in nature. And it shows how when we misunderstand what God has said, it not only causes confusion, but it causes hurt. It hurts ourselves and it hurts others in our lives as well. I think we know that to be true of the first two topics that we covered, uh, that of anger and that of lust, and that is most definitely true of this morning's topic as we hear Jesus correcting our misunderstanding of divorce. It's going to be the title of our sermon this morning, Correcting Our Misunderstanding of Divorce. Now, I'd venture to guess that we have all in this room been impacted by divorce in some way. Maybe like me, your parents were divorced. Maybe your children or siblings have been divorced. Maybe you've walked through a friend who has taken that painful journey through divorce. Or maybe you yourself have been divorced. 
And whatever your story may be, I think we can all agree that it is a painful story. It's a painful experience. It's a, it's a painful journey, one that I think is made even more painful due to the misunderstanding that so many of us have about what God has actually said regarding marriage and divorce. And so my prayer for this morning is this. It is threefold. Number one, it is that I would remain faithful to the text. Not saying more than what God has said, and yet at the same time, not saying less. And that means there's going to be some things said this morning that God has said that we don't really want to hear. And so I'm praying that the Spirit would not just open our hearts, but open our ears to hear. My second prayer is that the truth that we find in the words of Jesus this morning, I pray that it would correct any confusion that we might have over the topic of divorce. And the third thing is I pray that the love found in the way of Jesus would heal any hurt, hurt that you may have inflicted on others and hurt that may have been inflicted on you. And so I have a big ask of us before we dig into God's word this morning. I ask that we set aside what it is that we think God has said and listen to what God has actually said. As Jesus is going to do two things. He is going to confront our misunderstanding of divorce, and then he's going to set out to correct our misunderstanding of divorce. That sound okay? Let's do this. So number one, first thing we're going to see here in verse 31 is Jesus, he's going to confront our misunderstanding of divorce. Right? He begins this guy confronting it, and he says in verse 31, he says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, notice here, here and in the two previous, Jesus didn't say, you have read what God has said, did he? He didn't say that. He, he didn't say, you guys have been reading your Bibles, you've been reading the scriptures, you know what God has said. No, he, he says, you've heard it said. He's saying, you've heard others say what God has said rather than what God has actually said. If we were to paraphrase this uh, for today, we might say, you have seen it on Facebook that God has said. We've all done that, right? Or you might say, you have heard in a YouTube video recorded by a guy in his mother's basement who had a brand new revelation of what God has just said to him only. I think we've seen both of those. And what Jesus begins by doing, he's calling us out. He's calling us out for not listening with a critical ear for not thinking with a critical mind, for not reading with a critical eye, reading for ourselves. All right, it's kind of like the, um, there's a very famous quote by President Abraham Lincoln that goes something along the lines of, uh, do not believe everything you read on the internet just because there's a picture with a quote next to it. He said it, right? It's got a picture and a quote. There, um, there's a, a famous quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You know my love for Bonhoeffer, especially in this series, that says something along the lines of uh, silence in the face of evil is evil. And like you see that going all around. And yet you know that not one Bonhoeffer scholar can attribute that to him. But you see it on Instagram, and so it must be true, right? And what Jesus is getting at here is it's, it's as if we're listening to everybody but God, isn't it? We're listening to everybody but God. The other day, Jill and I, we ordered some new uh, furniture from Ikea. Pray for us. It arrived on Friday, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attempt to assemble this furniture today. And we all know, without me even saying it, you know I'm going to try to assemble without reading the directions, right? Ikea directions are, do they serve any purpose other than kindling for fire? 
And here's what I know is going to happen this afternoon. Uh, Jill's going to ask me, she's like, hey, hey, hon, did, did, you read, did you read the directions? And there's a question mark at the end of that question, but it's not really a question. It's a statement. And I'm going to claim that I know more than Ikea. I'm going to claim that I can do this better than him. And I know, I know I'm going to mess up and I'm going to be taking screws back out that I put in. I know I'm going to be frustrated. I know I'm going to get hurt by the saw and hammer that are not in the recommended tools list, but I'm going to have a need for them. And I know that then I'm going to pull out the directions and I'm going to see that I was wrong and Ikea was right. And I think what Jesus is kind of saying here, he's like, stop trying to assemble Ikea furniture without reading the directions Ikea gave you. Right? Stop trying to live your life without having read how God has called us to live our life. And yet that's exactly what many of us are doing. We're claiming to be followers of Jesus, and yet we are failing to listen to the words of Jesus. We are failing to live out the way of Jesus. We are failing to love like Jesus. Right? We are being discipled by the world out there rather than by the word of God. And we're living according to what others have said and what others have said God has said rather than what God has actually said. What I think we end up doing is we, we build ourselves an echo chamber and we live our lives in that echo chamber only hearing what we want to hear only reading what already supports our views and our beliefs, and then taking God's word and twisting God's word to say whatever it is that we want it to say. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing in Jesus' day. They were taking what God had spoken by, uh, to the Moses atop Mount Sinai in what we call the Mosaic Law, and they were twisting it to say what they wanted it to say, the, to justify the way in which they wanted to live. See, that the Pharisees, they were the experts of the Mosaic Law. They knew it inside and out. They were theological lawyers, but they were lawyers looking for a loophole. They were looking for a way out. And for them, when it came to divorce, the thing that mattered most to them, right, it wasn't the covenant of marriage. It wasn't even the cause of divorce. The thing that they viewed as most important was the certificate of divorce, and to them, they thought, you know what, as long as a husband gave his wife this legal document and he gave it to her in the presence of two witnesses, just like God had commanded, indicating that they are no longer married, well, then God was good with it. Right? God was good with it. They were free to go on and marry someone else. I mean, after all, they were like, it was God's idea, not ours, for this whole marriage certificate thing. Right? It says in Deuteronomy 24, it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts her it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her, yada, yada, yada. Big idea. Says right there in God's word, the Mosaic law, we're supposed to issue a certificate of divorce. Right, see? It's in there. We have met all of the necessary legal contractual requirements. We dotted every I. We crossed every T. After all, that's what we do. But later on in Matthew 19, what we see is the Pharisees, they come up to Jesus. And they're testing him, Matthew says, as they often are, and asking him, Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one man's wife for any cause? Right? What they're asking is, as long as we give her a certificate of divorce, the cause of divorce, it doesn't matter, does it? 
And in first century Jewish culture, there were basically three primary views of uh, of divorce, three different interpretations of the Mosaic law concerning divorce taught by three different rabbis. And the first was taught by a guy by the name of Rabbi Shammai, and he took the narrowest view of this Deuteronomy passage in Deuteronomy 24. He took the narrowest view of that word uh, indecency, and he focused on that word uh, indecency, interpreting it as sexual infidelity, uh, as adultery. Uh, that adultery, uh, for those of you who don't know, was originally punishable by death in the Mosaic Law. It's described in Leviticus 20. But now, 1,500 years later, the Jewish people, they, uh, they had since done away uh, with stoning for adultery. And we see that in Matthew 1, don't we, in the story of the birth of Jesus, as uh, Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, and he wasn't the baby daddy, was he? But what did Joseph do? It says, being a just man and unwilling to put Mary to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly rather than stone her publicly. The second school was by Rabbi Hillel. He took a bit broader view, and he was focusing on some forms of indecency. He was focused on some rather than indecency, and he expanded the acceptable causes of divorce. And one of the one of the things that he included in his interpretation was that if your wife burned your dinner, you could divorce her. Okay, I asked for my steak medium rare, hun, and you brought, it, you brought it medium. And I hate to tell you, but we're done. You're gone. I'm gonna find someone who knows how to make a medium rare steak. That's what he taught. The third school of thought was by a guy named Rabbi Akiva who took an even broader view, and he didn't just view that some forms of indecency were acceptable. He viewed any form of indecency was acceptable. And he took it to the extreme that if a husband simply lost interest in his wife and he found another woman that he liked better, that looked better, he could divorce his wife and marry her. And something hit me as I was reading this this week. You know, the more you come to understand the culture of the first century, the more you come to see it's not much different than the 21st century, is it? I think Scripture's a lot more relatable than we give it credit for, than we want to believe. Sin is sin. It was sin 2,000 years ago. It was sin 1,500 years before that. It was sin pretty much ever since Genesis 3, wasn't it? And like the Pharisees, we are lawyers looking for loopholes in God's Word, aren't we? We're asking those same questions that they're, they're asking, trying to find an escape hatch. We're taking what God has said, and we're twisting what God has said. And what we're doing is we're moving that line of what is acceptable to God, and we're moving it out there just far enough so that we no longer see our sin as sin. It's on this side of the line, not that side of the line. And when we do that, we, we feel self-righteous, don't we? I'm a good person. I didn't do what they did. We're filled with self-righteousness. We are filled with pride. And we start pointing out the sin of others that are on the other side of the line that we drew, not the line that God drew. We judge their sin and justify our sin. And I think that's how we've treated divorce. We have added our own restrictions to what God has said, but on the other end of the spectrum, we have applied our own liberties to what God has said, and that's caused a lot of confusion, and it's caused a lot of hurt. See, some have gone so far in one direction as to make marriage really nothing more than this just temporary experiment, 
Like, I don't know. Let's see how it goes. We'll give it a try. What's the worst that could happen? And then we, we enter into marriage with viewing divorce as this escape clause in case we get bored with each other, right? In case you want to try something new, in case you want to try somebody new. But others have gone so far in the other direction as to make divorce this unforgivable sin, forever pinning a scarlet letter to the chest of anyone who has ever been divorced, no matter the reason. You are excluded, if not excommunicated. And I'd venture to guess that some of us here have inflicted that pain on others. And I'd venture to guess that some of you here have experienced that pain, that it has been inflicted on you. I don't have to guess. I know it has. It's been inflicted on you by your former spouses. It's been inflicted on you by those that you thought were your friends and family. And what breaks my heart the most is that it was inflicted on you by churches and by pastors who failed to listen to you and failed to protect you as a victim, victims of domestic abuse, They have disqualified you from ministry simply because you were divorced, regardless of the reason. They don't care. They don't want to know the story. The church can be really great at throwing around truth, can't it? We're good at truth. We're good at throwing around truth, and we're really good at pointing the finger. And while we are called to share the truth, amen? Paul didn't end it there in Ephesians, did he? He said we're called to share the truth in what? We're called to share the truth in love. Rather than simply pointing, out or pointing the finger at the sin of others, we have been called to put our arm around others and walk alongside others, haven't we? And surprise, that's exactly what Jesus is doing, isn't it? He's putting his arm around us right now, and he's sharing the truth, but he's sharing it in love, and he's bringing us back to this path of faithfully following him, of listening to his words, of what he actually said, of living out his way and loving like him. And so now that he's confronted our misunderstanding, in the, in the second verse, what Jesus does is he corrects our misunderstanding of divorce, right? That's what we see here next. Jesus corrects our misunderstanding of divorce, and he corrects our misunderstanding of marriage in the process. He says in verse 32, he says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Did that not quite sit right with you? It didn't me. To be honest, it kind of feels a little unloving, doesn't it? We, we, can, we can nod our head there. It feels a little unloving, if not um, abusive to women, almost. It kind of feels like the, the, that Jesus is penalizing the woman for what the man did, doesn't it? Accusing her of committing adultery if the husband leaves her and she remarries. He messed up. She's the adulteress, though. I, it, and it sounds, it sounds like Jesus is limiting divorce to the husband, isn't he? Right? If she cheats, he can divorce her. But if she cheats, he, or if he's sleeping around, she, she can't leave him. And it also sounds like he's limited divorce to infidelity, to sexual immorality, he says. And I think the natural response to reading this passage is to then ask a question like, what if he's beating her? What if he is abusing her? Is, is God saying she's got to stay there and she's got to take it? That doesn't sound much like Jesus, does it? 
What do we do with this then? Do we just turn the page? Do we skip the passage? Do we pretend like it wasn't there? Do we just go our own way and be like, I'll follow Jesus on like, so I guess I'm gonna follow Jesus 99% of the time, but not here. Because I don't agree with this. This doesn't make sense to me. If you remember, I told you on the outset of this series in the Sermon on the Mount, the faith we follow in Jesus might not look like what you thought or sound like what you have been taught. And I think we've seen that every week of this series. And so to help us better understand what Jesus is saying here and what he's saying from his heart, what what he means by this, here's what I want us to do. We're gonna allow other passages of scripture to interpret this passage of scripture. We're gonna allow what is clear to help us understand what is less clear. We're gonna build this framework around what we know to be clear and certain in scripture to guide us in what is less clear and less certain. Does that make sense? And so here's what we're gonna do. We're going to flip a few pages in your Bible. Why don't you flip with me to Matthew 19? We referenced that passage a bit ago. Go ahead and flip with me to Matthew 19. And we see again another story of Jesus having an interaction with Pharisees talking about divorce. And if you remember, in verse 3, they they asked him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, regardless of the reason? And Jesus, he answers in verse 4, and he says, have you not read... Which is kind of funny, right? Like, these are the Pharisees. These are the legal experts. They knew this thing inside and out. I love Jesus. He's got just that little bit of sarcasm in him. Just, have you not read? Or, or, or does your Bible look like this? I don't know. If it looks like this, you clearly didn't read it. Pharisees' Bible, though, the Pharisees' Bible looked like this. The heart just didn't look like that. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Any, uh, any West Wing fans? The television show, by the way, not just the part of the building. West Wing fans, not one? Okay, well, you are missing the greatest television show in the history of television. If I get stranded on a deserted island and I get to take one television show with me, I'm taking the West Wing even ahead of the office. Wow. Yeah. Well, here we go. So in season seven, there's a, they're on the next camp, uh, onto the next presidential campaign, and Annabeth, the, uh, the press secretary, she says to Leo, who's the VP candidate, she says, Leo, if you don't like what the press is asking you, then don't accept the premise of the question. Well, what she's saying is just, if you don't like that question, answer a different question that you do like. And it kind of seems like that's what Jesus is doing here, isn't it? Like he responds to their question on the cause of divorce by talking about the covenant of marriage. And so what does Jesus do? He goes back. And he goes back before the Mosaic Law. They went to the Mosaic Law. He goes before that, back to Genesis 1, to the story of creation as God brought everything into existence and he created humanity. And it says in Genesis 1, verse 27, that he created us in his own image, doesn't it? Male and female, he created us. Unique in gender, by design, with a purpose. And yet at the same time, I feel like I wouldn't be doing it justice if I didn't say there is no mention of one gender being of greater value and more beloved by the Heavenly Father than the other. Amen? We got that one? Just making sure. But here's where we begin to see what is clear and what is certain in Scripture regarding marriage. And so here's here's the first thing I want us to see. Number one, it's that God created us male and female unique in gender. We good with that one? Okay, God created us male and female unique in gender. Then what Jesus does is he goes on to Genesis 2. 
And he shares of God's gift of marriage. It is, it is a gift. It, and God's design for marriage that he kind of lays out briefly in Genesis 2 verse 24 of one man and one woman coming together as husband and wife. And Jesus, he tells us here that, that, that this coming together is in such a special and, and unique way that they become something new, don't they? They become something new as these two unique parts come together and become one whole. And so that brings us to the second thing that we learn here about marriage, and that is this. It's that God established the divine institution of marriage. Right? God established the divine institution of marriage. And that then means God gets to define it, doesn't he? Here's the one a lot of people might not like. And yet, I think we can agree it is what is clear in Scripture, and that is number three, that God defined marriage as a sacred lifelong union between one man and one woman, right? God defined marriage as a sacred lifelong union between one man and one woman. We see that in the first two chapters of Scripture. And what that means, I'm more a fan of us as a church being known by what we are for, meaning I would rather tell you God's design and God's intent and what that means is anything that falls outside of that is not God's design. It's not God's intent. Does that make sense? Because I think as a church, we have a habit of, of, of cherry picking, don't we? We got like this one thing that we want to go after and poke and point at. Let's go back to what God is for. I think it's just a much more loving way to go about this. Not any less true. And so anything outside of God's definition of marriage, even if it's recognized by the world, is not marriage as defined by God. Marriage is a covenant. It is a promise that a husband and wife enter into as they commit to uphold the, the vows that they make to each other and before God. And I was thinking about this this week. This is, um, this is why I don't encourage husbands and wives at, as they get married to write their own vows. And it's because rather than making a covenant commitment, what you end up doing when you write your own vows is you're, you're expressing your love and affection for each other. You are reading a love letter rather than expressing vows. Does that make sense? And hear me say, they are beautiful tears. Everyone in the room at the wedding, we're bawling our eyes out because they're so great, and it's not a vow. And so like, if you ever say, hey, Pastor Ash, will you do our wedding? One, I'd love to. Uh, secondly, I want to make sure we're making a covenant commitment to each other before God as two believers. Now we can add on your vows after that. Your affections, your love can be expressed in that because it's still beautiful. Like, let's not, let's not kill the fun at weddings, guys. But let's also not forget what a wedding is. It is a covenant commitment that we are making but not only has God given us the gift of marriage, but God's given us the gift of sex, right? Amen? We got to loosen up right here. <laughs> Take some stretches. The kids are downstairs. It's all good. The kids that are in the room can't understand what I'm saying. God has given us the gift of sex to be enjoyed within the gift of marriage. As the two become one flesh, united together through the consummation of that marriage, through this sexual union. And so that leads us to the fourth thing that we know to be clear and certain in Scripture, and that is that sex is a gift from God, and all God's people said amen, given to be enjoyed within a marriage by a husband and wife. 
I didn't get any amens at the end of that. Sex is a gift from God given to be enjoyed within a marriage by a husband and wife. And that marital union, that one flesh joined together by God, it was one that was never intended to be separated by man. The only means of separation God had in mind was that of death. What is the vow? Till death do us part. And so here's the fifth thing that I want us to see about marriage and about sex. It's that sex forever unites two individuals as one flesh. Right? Sex forever unites two individuals as one flesh in a certain way. Notice I didn't say husband and wife. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 6 about uh, if a man sleeps with a prostitute, he is united with her because of the sexual act. And so you, I hope you see here Jesus' response to their question on the cause of divorce with God's design for the covenant of marriage. And what Jesus is effectively saying here is, you've asked me about adultery and divorce, but I say to you that you have entirely missed the point of everything God has said in his own word, his words about sex and marriage. I think we've missed some of that as well, and that's why I wanted to, we got to go back to the beginning to answer the question of what's Jesus saying in verse 32. The Pharisees, they then respond in chapter 19, verse 7, saying, but then why did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce and send her on her way? Jesus, in verse 8, he's like, um, nobody commanded you to get a divorce. Nobody commanded you to get a divorce. Not me. I never said it, Jesus says. Moses never commanded you to get a divorce, and certainly God didn't do that. And see, while God may accommodate divorce, what he says here is that it is only because of your hardness of heart. It is only because of sin that this is an accommodation. But from the beginning, he says, when God established marriage back in Genesis 1 and 2, it was not so. And so here we begin to see what is clear and certain in Scripture about divorce. And the first thing that I want us to see here is this. It's that divorce is never God's desire for a marriage. Right? Divorce is never God's desire for a marriage. Divorce didn't enter the story until sin entered the story in Genesis 3. But I also need you to hear that while God never desires divorce, he never demands divorce, Jesus does say he has allowed for it, doesn't he? And so that leads us to our second thing that I want us to see here, and that is this. Divorce is not commanded by God, but it is allowed by God because of our sin. You understand the difference there? It is not commanded, but it is allowed. And yet, I think we still need to clarify something. Like, even when sin is driving a wedge and fracturing a marriage, God's desire is still for that sin that exists to come out to light, to be exposed and for the offending spouse to respond, not by simply acknowledging that they did something wrong, not simply uh, apologizing for what they did, because in those cases, typically what happens is it's going to happen again, and it's going to happen again, and it's going to happen again. No, we're not after an apology. We're not after an acknowledgement. What God is after is remorse over that sin. What God is after is repentance of that sin, turning from what was done and turning back to God. Only then do we have a chance of, of pursuing reconciliation between a husband and wife. Reconciliation cannot happen without repentance. Does that make sense? 
There's an order to these steps. And as reconciliation begins to happen between husband and wife, then we can pursue restoration of the marriage. And so that leads us to our third point here that I want us to see, and it is that God's desire is for repentance of sin and restoration of the marriage. That is God's desire. And here's another thing that's hard to say and harder to hear. That is true regardless of the sin. It's regardless of the sin that's been committed. And so what I want us to hear is that if that is God's desire, should that not also be our desire as well? But I think that naturally leads to a question. I'm sure many of you are like, but, but I got a story. I know you do. When, we, when it comes to things like divorce, it's not black and white, is it? It's not binary. There's a lot in here that fits in the gray, and we need to enter into the mess of each other's lives and understand that story. Because the question that I think we start to ask at about this point is, when is divorce permissible, Pastor Ash? I get it. I, I get what you said. God doesn't desire it. It's, it's not desirable, but you said it's permissible. So when is it permissible? Well, we know what the Pharisees thought. They thought any day was a good day for a divorce party, didn't they? They thought any cause was a good cause for a divorce party. And I say that like there's divorce parties today, aren't there? We celebrate divorce in our culture. The Pharisees were, as New Testament scholar N.B. Stonehouse says, substantiating a policy which permits husbands to freely, at their own pleasure, divorce their wives. Whatever they wanted, their heart's desire, you be you. Do what makes you happy. That's what marriage was to them. It was about their happiness. It was about their satisfaction. And when their marriage failed to make them happy, when their spouse failed to satisfy their desires, they left her. Here, certificate of divorce. Go. I got a new one. Here's the thing. Marriage is not about demanding from one another. No, marriage is about being devoted to one another. Amen? And if you've been married for a half second, I think you know that. Marriage is not about demanding from one another, but about being devoted to one another to the point that Paul, in Ephesians 5, he calls husbands. Guys, I'm speaking to us for a second. Husbands, past husbands, hopefully future husbands, wherever you may be, he says, husbands, love your wives. And then he tells us how we are called to love our wives. As Christ loved the church. And you know how Christ loved the church? You know where that ended for him? It ended at the cross. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? Jesus suffered. Jesus bled. Jesus died for us, the church, his unfaithful bride. That is how we have been called to love our wives. But back to the question at hand. I'm not trying to avoid the question. When is divorce permissible, even if not desirable? Well, I think Jesus provides one of those permissible exceptions here in verse 9. He says that any kind of sexual immorality, be it adultery, be it infidelity, be it habitual pornography, let's not limit a word that Jesus did not limit. Any of those is a case. 
And so this leads us to number four, and that is that divorce is permissible in the case of sexual immorality. I'm just restating what Jesus said there. And here's why. I don't want us to just see it as, oh, okay, well, if that happens, I can do it. We need to understand why. Sex is never just physical, is it? We hear that. We see that on television. We may have even experienced it in our own lives. Sex is never just physical. That's a good spot for an amen. Amen? Sex is never just physical. Remember, sex forever unites two individuals as one flesh. Paul tells us that. Jesus tells us that. God tells us that earlier. And so when you unite yourself sexually with someone other than your spouse, what you are doing is severing the unity that you had with your spouse. Right? Sexual immorality, it separates what God has joined together. It is literally ripping apart flesh as though you have come in and you have torn your chest open. That's why adultery is so painful. That's why it leaves such a lasting scar. And in the case of sexual immorality, divorce is simply an acknowledgement of the separation that has already occurred. And now, now we get to the next step, and some are going to say sexual immorality is the only permissible reason for divorce. That's it. That is all that this passage says. Not abuse, not desertion, none of those. In those cases, what some will say is that a woman must remain by her husband's side, even with a black eye, even with a broken arm, even with a pile of debt that he has left her. And some churches and pastors even have the nerve to blame the woman for the situation she has found herself in and telling her that she needs to submit to her husband. And I wish I was making up like a vague general story and not telling you someone's story that I know. That's what some will say. Others are going to say that this is simply one example of a broader reason. And they say that because... Scripture says that. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, he says in in verses 10 to 14, he, he says, you know, while divorce is never desirable, he acknowledges that. He says, even, he gives a very specific, he gives a specific case here. Even if uh, two unbelievers get married, and after the marriage, one of them be, professes faith in Christ and begins to follow Jesus, and the other does not, he's like, even then, divorce is not desirable. That's not what we should do. But then he says that if the unbelieving spouse seeks a divorce because of your faith in Christ, not because of sexual immorality, but simply because you are following Jesus now, what he says in verse 15, he says, let it be so. Well, so we've just now received another example, another permissible reason for divorce. It doesn't end there. Martin Luther, he reads what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.8 as Paul permitting divorce in the event of desertion by a spouse. And desertion can be taken in a lot of ways, but essentially, uh, if they have left you, they may have left you physically. They may have left you with habitual drug abuse. I think there's many ways that a, a spouse can desert another spouse. And so then we're left with this question, like, how can some claim sexual immorality is the only biblical grounds for divorce when the Bible gives other permissible causes? It's because they're adding restrictions to what God said. It's because they're twisting what God has said. Instead, what I I want us to do is I want us to see when we come to the entirety of Scripture, 
These are examples of a broader reason, and that is the breaking of the marriage covenant. The breaking of the vows that you have taken any and all of those vows. Does this make sense? And so what I want to end with here in this list here is that divorce is permissible when the marriage covenant has been broken. And therefore, so is remarriage. There's a lot of reasons it is not permissible. There's a lot of reasons remarriage is not permissible. But I want us to see where it is. But even more than that, I want us to see why. I don't want us to just hear the words. I want us to hear the heart of God behind the words. But I come back. Divorce is never God's desire. We get that? Never. In fact, in Malachi 2.16, God says in some translations, he says, I hate divorce. Strong words, aren't they? But the reason God says it is because divorce is the result of unfaithfulness to the marriage covenant and faithfulness to both God and your spouse. Why wouldn't God hate that? Why wouldn't God hate when we tear apart what he has joined together? Now with all of that, you ready to go back to verse 32 and give it one more try? That was like the longest tangent in the history of my preaching. That verse that we looked at like four hours ago, let's come back to that. Let's come back to verse 32. I want you to listen to it differently now. And Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I think now we see a bit more of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that if you divorce your spouse for an impermissible reason, not because they've broken the marriage covenant, not because they've committed sexual immorality, uh, but because you fell out of love and you found someone else. They stopped to make you happy. They stopped satisfying your desires. If, if you divorce your spouse for an impermissible reason and they marry someone else, okay, you, the one initiating the divorce, have made them commit adultery. You have made them the victim of adultery, some of your translations may say. You have put them in a situation where their sexual union with their new spouse has severed the union that they had with you. You did that to them. Sounds different than it did the first time, doesn't it? See, I hope you see here Jesus isn't calling out the wife as the example here. He's pointing to the husband. I think it's safe to say that anytime we read Scripture and we think that Jesus is somehow condemning a woman for being a woman, we've read it wrong. What we see in Scripture is Jesus protecting women, elevating women, empowering women. Jesus isn't calling out the wife. She's calling out the husband. She's, he's not calling out the one who has been divorced. He's calling out the one who initiated the impermissible divorce. And I absolutely love, you guys know who Eugene Peterson is? I fell in love with this man on vacation a couple weeks ago reading his biography, Burning in My Bones. He is the um, author of The Message, which I think has gotten a really bad rap as uh, a poor translation of the Bible. And I, I think of it as a paraphrased book about the Bible, and it changes the way you read that book, and it becomes beautiful, especially as you understand the story behind why he wrote it. But he says here, his paraphrase, not his translation, his paraphrase, is if you divorce your wife... You're responsible for making her an adulteress. You're responsible for putting her in a situation in which she will sever that union, unless she's already made herself 
that bisexual promiscuity, which doesn't appear to be the case here. And if you, if another person marries such a divorced adulteress, you're automatically an adulterer yourself. And I love how he ends it. He says, you cannot use legal cover to mask a moral failure. That's what the Pharisees were doing, and I think that's what we do in so many things, including divorce and marriage and remarriage. See, far too many faithful followers of Jesus, both men and women, have been hurt by professing Christians, by churches, and by pastors who use legal cover to mask a moral failure, and what Jesus is saying is that's not okay. Far too often the church has taken and twisted what God has said about divorce, and you know what they've done? They blamed the victim, which is far too often a woman, and they have protected the victimizer. And I know some of you here and some of you at home have experienced that. You've experienced that hurt that's been inflicted upon you by the church. And man, as your pastor, I just need you to hear me say, I am so, so sorry. That is... I'm sorry for what was said to you. I'm sorry for what was done to you. And that is not what God desires for you. God will hold those people accountable for what they have said and what they have done and how they have twisted what he has said. And I also want to add that if you are here, if you are watching and you find yourself in a marriage filled with abuse, filled with adultery, and you're not sure where to turn, you're not sure what to do, man, will you please reach out to us and allow us as elders to enter into your story, to walk with you, to help you, to protect you by bringing that sin into the light and exposing it. That is the only way forward. So, man, where do we go from here? What what do we do with this? How do we respond to what God has said to us here this morning in his word? We do what we used to do every week, and we do what we're going to do again every week starting today. And that is we are going to come to the cross. We are going to come to the cross. We are going to come to the Lord's table. We're going to come to the cross to the place of both healing of hurt and forgiveness of sin. And if that hurt has been inflicted on you, what I need you to know is there is healing at the cross. There is healing in the arms of your Heavenly Father. And if you have inflicted that hurt on others, either directly by your words and your actions or indirectly by your lack of actions and your lack of speaking up towards someone that you yourself have divorced or towards someone else that is divorced, I need you to know that there is forgiveness. I need you to know that there's forgiveness of the cross. There is no sin the blood of Jesus cannot forgive. Amen? No sin. And when we come to the cross, we come to the cross on our knees at an equal playing field, don't we? We come to the cross knowing that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, every one of us. We come to the cross on our knees knowing and recognizing that it was our sin that nailed him to the cross. We come to the cross knowing that we are in need of his grace and his mercy that we have not earned, that we do not deserve. That's what we find when we come to the foot of the cross, and that is what we remember when we come to the Lord's table and we partake in the Lord's Supper together. That Christ shed his blood to cleanse us of our shame and guilt and to heal the hurt that exists in our hearts. And that Christ gave his life to forgive you of your sins, 
to pay our debt, to reconcile us to God as his chosen son and daughter. And so what we're going to do, this has been a heavy morning. And so I'm going to give us a moment to pray silently as Tim plays. And we're going to allow the Holy Spirit to stir and continue to speak as we reflect on what God has said, as we repent of our sin, as we remember the love and the grace that has been extended to us by Jesus. And then I'm going to pray over you, and then I'm going to lead us in taking communion together. That make sense? And so let's spend the next moment bowing our heads silently in prayer. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.